0: Welcome to the New York Institute for the Humanities podcast, now coming from the New York Public Library. I'm Robert Boynton. In this episode of The Institute's Vault, we have an excerpt from a two-day symposium, Hannah Arendt Right Now, which explored the philosopher's impact on the 21st century. The 2006 event was held on the 100th anniversary of Arendt's birth. In this session, Samantha Power talks about how Arendt has influenced her. Power was Barack Obama's human rights advisor and then served as U.S. ambassador to the United Nations. She is the author of several books, including the Pulitzer Prize winning A Problem from Hell, America, and the Age of Genocide. She's a professor of practice at Harvard's Law School and Kennedy School. The Iranian writer Azar Nafisi responded to Power's presentation. Nafisi is the author of Reading Lolita in Tehran a memoir in books.
1: Anything that has to do with Hannah Arendt intimidates me. Doing it in front of all the people here and all of you intimidates me even more. Having Azar as my respondent, Ren as my, the alleged moderator, is very intimidating. What I thought I would do is talk about some of the big themes that leaped out of me and then try to relate them to the world that I've encountered or my view of the world that we're living in today and, of course, a view of atrocities and human rights violations and state power, overuse, underuse, misuse, that I think one has to begin with is that of responsibility, because I think most of us really wouldn't be here if Arendt wasn't somebody who, in the words of the New York Times review of origins, was one who had thought as well as suffered and was one who believed that you had to combine judgment and action. If the conference is straying waywardly away from Aaron, it's just because the world is summoning it and us, and I think she'd approve. She said that when she saw the Reichstag on fire in 1933 that she said, I felt responsible. From that moment on, I felt responsible. Wren asked me to say a word about what brought me to rent, but what also brought me to writing about dark themes. And it was a little bit similar, but more removed. It was, as many have maybe heard me say, but it was the images of the concentration camps that came out of the former Yugoslavia in August of 1992. I just graduated from college, and it retained somehow through a liberal arts education the capacity for surprise and outrage, and just couldn't believe that there were camps again in Europe. And honestly, had the men in those camps not looked precisely like those that I had seen in Holocaust documentaries or at the museum in the mall on Washington, which would open actually the following year. But had the resonance not been just so, maybe it wouldn't have penetrated my consciousness in quite the same way. I had been primed to be outraged about a particular kind of genocide. I'm not sure how well I would have done if my first genocide were Hutu and Tutsi and whether I would have run off to Central Africa with that same sense of incredulity. I would like to think I would have, but I'm not optimistic about that. My other sort of moment of conversion, which I've also written briefly about, was, and I'll come to Aaron and how she relates to this actually a little bit later, but was being a reporter then in the former Yugoslavia. I think I was 24 at the time. I'd been there a couple of years at that point. And covering the slaughter and the banality of daily life amid slaughter for the Washington Post at that point, I was just, had become the stringer for the, for the Washington Post, freelancer, but with a, an affiliation. And being told that one of the so-called safe areas, Srebrenica, was coming under sustained serb attack and knowing that that was awful i mean there's no no question living in sarajevo at the time knowing what it meant to be under sustained attack not in the way that journalists Live in Iraq, which is much worse today. Insofar as you're actually an, an outright target, you're more of a target. There's a greater bounty, I guess, if you're a Western journalist operating outside the green zone in the red zone, as they call it, of the rest of Baghdad and the Sunni Triangle. In those days, you were just at risk because you were there. There was nothing special about you. You were just, in the same way that Bosnians were at risk, you were at risk. And uh, so, in that was much less dangerous in retrospect, certainly than Iraq today. Still, it was dangerous and it wasn't pleasant. And uh, knowing that a safe area was now coming. up, under what seemed like a heightened assault, seemed truly dreadful. So I called my editor at The Washington Post and breathlessly recounted to him what I understood to be true. I wasn't in Srebrenica, I was, again, in Sarajevo, but I had my sources in the pocket and I had my sources in the Bosnian government and, of course, the UN was there, sort of (laughs) there, present physically, but maybe not spiritually. He gave the best account that I could of what was happening and my editor, and I wrote about this in the preface of Problem from Hell, but my editor said, well, it sounds like when Srebrenica falls... We'll have a story. Call me when there's real news. Another attack in the the Balkans. What's new in that? And what haunted me in this, again, Arendt's writings on disbelief on incredulity. What haunts me about that exchange is not the evil Western editor who's a perfectly lovely guy who'd given me a lot of space to write about a conflict that had actually gotten old to many, many readers. So you happen to get that one wrong. But it was that I got it so wrong because I fought, but I didn't imagine that something I had never seen in the Balkans in a couple years there could happen. I knew it would be awful, but it would be awful in the way that other things had been awful. I didn't know it would be radically newly novelly awful, (laughs) and so I couldn't have imagined that at that stage in the war that if a safe area fell, that what Mlodich would do would not be simply to take the territory and and kill in order to take the territory, but that when he, as you all know, when he got every man and boy in his custody, he would murder every single one of them, 8,000 of them, then in the five days after I had this conversation with my editor. So the moment at which the policy world might have reacted was a moment where. I didn't feel like I had the authority, but I also definitely didn't have the moral imagination to contest his bad decision in the way that I wish I had. So to some degree, that massive 600-page book, Problem from Hell, grows out of that singular failure on my part. And when those men were murdered and I finally comprehended just what had possessed the Bosnian-Serb commander, Ratko Mladic, and the horror that had engulfed those people whose fate I cared a whole lot about, but again, who I didn't know personally, but I was so overwhelmed by that, that as Aaron said, I felt like the abyss had opened. And that's what she described of finally sort of, she knew Nazis, but even she couldn't quite wrap her mind around the depth of the horror that was engulfing people in Eastern Europe and in her own country. And Azar and I talk a lot about the imagination in a different context, but the constructive version of that, the corollary of the story I just told you. How do we tweak the imagination as voices in our societies early, prospectively? How do we get politics mobilized around crises before they happen? Whether it's how do the New Orleans times picayune reporters get people to pay attention to the, the levies and those problems when they wrote their stories two years before Katrina? How do the bureaucrats in the space shuttle challenger who are trying to draw attention. What about global warming? Are we lucky that the Supreme Court hearing on global warming is being heard on an 80 degree Washington December day? (laughs) I mean, are these the ways one has to tweak the imagination? Does it already have to happen in order for the abyss to open? And I think empirically so far the answer has been yes. So this is my relationship anyway, briefly, to uh, responsibility to the idea, to the imperative of combining judgment and hopefully rigorous judgment with action in the world that we live in. Uh, Some of you may have seen me on my phone in between the panels. I might have looked like I lost a relative or something. I'm totally fine. I was my colleague at the Kennedy School at Harvard for many years, for the last five years, was Michael Ignatieff, whose writings you like or don't like. Michael was very much in favor, of course, of the war in Iraq, ahead of the war in Iraq. He was in favor of it. I don't want to speak for him. I should never speak for him. We had terrible fights in the the months previous, but his basic feeling was actually a little bit, uh, dis- part of Canaan and, and, and part of, I don't know who, Cheney in in a way, insofar as he, not uh, Michael's not Cheney, but the idea was <laughs> that there are two axes on which you measure this regime and on which you study this regime. One is a national security axis, the other is a human rights axis. Michael would have been the first to say, Saddam Hussein is not in the red zone on either of those axes. In other words, it's not an imminent threat and it's not an ongoing genocide. But, He believed that being in the dark orange zone on both axes meant that you crossed a threshold and that that warranted an invasion of Iraq. My view is irrelevant, but definitely was as tormented and and didn't know enough about the weapons of mass destruction piece, but sort of believed, I guess, what everybody believed that he would... I'm sure many of you didn't, but I, I, I believe that because he had used chemical weapons against the Kurds and I had documented it in the book that chances were he certainly had chemical weapons still. Anyway, Michael, though, combined those two things, thought it would do more good than harm to go to war. I also thought it would do more good than harm in Iraq because when something is so brutal, it's, again, the limits of the imagination, something like Saddam Hussein. I mean, how could anything be worse than Saddam Hussein? Well, guess what? <laughs> how can anything be worse than today? We got to get out. We got to get out yesterday. It's so appealing But it turns out there's always a worse, worse. But I thought it would make Iraq, believe it or not, a more humane place, but the world a far more dangerous place. And that given how despised the Bush administration of the United States had become already by March of 2003, that it was much more important to work through international institutions. I didn't have a great answer as to how that was going to make life better for the Iraqi people, and that frustrated me immensely. But it did seem like, in balance, the wrong thing to do. With Michael, it felt, in balance, like the right thing to do. Back to my phone call. So Michael got it wrong, I got it half wrong, and whether we got it right or wrong is irrelevant. But Michael took an Arendtian lesson, or took Arendt, I think, to new heights in the wake of this, and he would not describe the journey in as linear a way as I'm describing it, but he left Harvard and he went to run for office in Canada to become a member of parliament which he succeeded in doing, barely. He's himself from a Russian descent, and he was, of course, he's pro-American, relative to most Canadians these days. He was pro-war, and for some reason, the head of the Liberal Party put him in a heavily Ukrainian, anti-war, (laughs) anti-American district. So he almost lost what had been the safest seat in the Liberal Party, but he won. And then he ran to become the head of the Liberal Party, which would mean if he wins he becomes the head of the opposition in Canada, which means he's one election away from becoming prime minister of Canada. Now, Michael's an intellectual historian and has written about Arendt and has marinated in her in in much the same way many of us sort of amateurs have. I mean, he's not an Arendt scholar by any means, but this for him is, here I was an armchair quarterback Lobbing grenades at states and governments and sounding off about what the United States should do with its military might, sending, in effect, being part of sending young boys off to war. And this is the mess that we have landed in. I got to go do something. I got to be more responsible. I've got to put myself on the line. I can't just be a pundit anymore. I don't want to romanticize it or demonize it. I mean, it, it, I think that this is deep down sort of what what has gone on in Michael. Anyway, the update now is just that he actually got the most votes. He got 35% of the votes, and the next person beneath him got 28%, who was his college roommate. It was totally anti-war, and they had these slugfests where they each invoked things that they'd been doing in college, and it was th- incredibly <laughs> ugly. And Michael won the first ballot, and then the three and four ganged up against Michael, Ray dropped out. And so now it's this actually French-Canadian who I, whose name I hadn't even heard because he wasn't even really in the running. And Michael, and the French-Canadian who's got the backing of the guys who back number three or number four rather, is is ahead. But Ray's voters have to decide who they're going to turn to. So by the time I stop yammering, we'll know whether Michael <laughs> will be the uh, head of the Liberal Party, which is a sort of amazing thought. Anyway, <laughs> I say all this because Public intellectuals are very good at talking about responsibility, but not always terribly good at actually exercising it in government. We can be lousy at it, look at Wolfowitz, or actually exercising responsibility with regard to our own ideas and how they've been appropriated or how we have pushed them, prosecuted them. I was having a conversation a couple weeks ago with a colleague of mine at at the Kennedy School, Graham Allison. He had this idea that a new NGO was needed to give grades To public intellectuals, not on the merits of their writing or the coherence of their ideas, but on whether they got it right ahead of time. I thought this was something that if I had a column or something, I would write about this. But he used the example of Ken Pollack and The Gathering Storm about the clear and present danger that Saddam posed, which was really influential in Democratic Party circles. And then Ken Pollack has come out with a a book about Iran, which I haven't read, but Mm -hmm. got a lot of readers in part because many people had heard of him in the prior context and so on because he has government experience and was thought to be an expert on the region. But my colleague, Graham Allison, I, I don't claim this original thought, so I want to footnote him because I think it's quite brilliant. But he thought that it should be like smoking, that there should be a sticker that you have to put on a book Basically, that this guy's last book was hazardous for your health. And you should know when you're reading about his views on Iran that this is what happened the last time. I never thought of that before. Again, I stress that I agonize about the Iraq War, so to not say at all that I thought it was easy prospectively to know where to tip, and many of you, I'm sure, saw it much more clearly than I did. I mean, my book was used by Cheney and by Wolfowitz because of the documentation of Saddam Hussein's genocide and his use of chemical weapons, many people drew as the inevitable conclusion of my book a very gung-ho American interventionism and American unilateralism even. I thought what I was trying to convey in the book was that our systematic failure to inject regard for human beings into our foreign policy, which gives you Rwanda, was both fatal for the Rwandans and the Bosnians and the Cambodians and initially the Jews and the Armenians, but it was also destructive in the long term from the standpoint of traditional U.S. national interests. And for me, Rwanda and the neglect of Iraqis, the failure to think through Iraqis or to integrate them into the pre-war planning for Iraq, are the flip sides of the same coin. They are the systematic exclusion of consideration of human consequences in the crafting of American foreign policy. But a lot of people saw my work as very much licensing or encouraging interventionism, whereas what I was trying to do was to encourage attention to human beings at the highest levels of government, which could tip occasionally, as in Rwanda, in favor of intervention once you do the cost-benefit analysis. It would not tip in favor of intervention over Chechnya when you don't risk a nuclear war to help the Chechen people, but you certainly integrated into your dealings back then when we had more legitimacy to speak out on human rights in your diplomacy with Russia. Russia And at that time when we had economic leverage over the Russians before they had oil or had discovered the oil that was there. So it was about, are those people forever present in your mind when you're thinking about what to do vis-a-vis another country? Maybe there should be a warning sticker on my next book. Maybe I wasn't careful enough. Maybe it has to be scripted just so. And I certainly wouldn't have foreseen the appropriation of the language of human rights and humanitarian intervention. And all of us are now grappling With the fact that our entire democratic culture now is very, very well disposed, very much tending toward throwing baby out with bathwater and basically drawing the wrong lessons from Iraq. I mean, one lesson from Iraq could be don't go to war when you don't have the support of almost anybody in the international community other than Great Britain who is seen as more a brother or a son than an ally. And certainly don't go to war when you have not had contact with people within the country and have no sense of what has actually gone on in the country in 20, 30, 40 years. And don't go to war when you haven't done any planning for the morning after war. And be very careful about ever going to war. Because people die in war and you behave terribly in war. Everybody behaves terribly in war. Those seem to me very good lessons to learn from Iraq. The lesson I fear is being learned from Iraq is don't care about citizens abroad. This is what happens. You get stuck in quagmire. And so I think we've got to recalibrate, reclaim our concepts and our language. And the spin and the constant deceit that followed the conduct of the war and all of the claims that were made and continue to be made by the Bush administration don't help that effort, of course, because nothing is credible. So if the threat was hyped then maybe there is no threat out there. If when Bush talks about democracy, he's talking actually about regime change, then maybe there's no point in talking about democracy. Anyway, I'm straying from rent. I want to get right back to her. I just wanted to say that about responsibility, that I think we all bear it and could be more introspective ourselves. And I'd like to practice that if I can. Okay. The second thing about Arendt that, that I love um, and that just speaks to me is her empiricism. Here she is crafting these ideas and these theories, but always with that hypervigilant antenna out into the world around her. So Origins of Totalitarianism, of course, starts as her excavation of her own country's implosion or poisoning. That's how it starts. And remember, at that time, many who were anti-fascists were incapable of seeing the sins of those whose company they kept. And Arendt is literally all set, right? Elizabeth, I mean, it's not called Argentine totalitarianism, then, but it's gonna be about the rise of Nazism. And that's a totalitarian structure that she's working on. But then, rooted in the world that she's in, she sees Stalin, she has to take account of this other dueling overlapping form of monstrosity. And she does. And even as she's writing the book, the rush to, it's not the normal sort of rush to deadline that we all feel, which is usually rooted in actually wanting to go to the movies again and wanting our lives back But it's rooted in a sense that Jews are still vulnerable and it's rooted in a sense that minorities are being excluded. It's rooted in a sense that totalitarianism will rise again and that this diagnostic is going to equip us to recognize it early and perhaps to diffuse it. And that sort of real-worldedness where your ideas don't just get played out in your own little laboratory of your apartment, but they're forever in dialogue with the world around you, I think is incredibly powerful and important for us to remember. On that note, then, I mentioned already that some of the dangers I think of throwing baby out with bathwater on Iraq. We have in the human rights movement, I think this has been lurking in the discussions all day, but we're in the midst of a colossal conundrum right now, I feel anyway. Maybe others see it more clearly and, and can add light. But on the one hand, what we in the human rights community have been arguing for a couple decades, namely that human rights and U.S. national security are actually linked. That is, for instance, in Bosnia, the case I mentioned where we didn't do nearly enough while people were dying, it was a quasi-failed state, a quasi-genocidal state. It had all the noxious elements of both. But we thought we could, we, the United States, thought we could build a wall around this country and that that kind of genocidal mentality or that violence would stay contained. And as long as it didn't spill over and implicate Greece and Turkey and things that were truly dear to us, namely the NATO structure, then, as James Baker said, we don't have a dog in this fight. Well, guess who got into Bosnia in the 90s? Al-Qaeda got into Bosnia before we knew who Al-Qaeda was. Bin Laden traveled on a Bosnian passport through the 90s. These places do become, not always, but very often a breeding ground for those who eventually then do become threatening to us. These eventualities aren't necessarily revealed in election cycles, It requires a policymaker to distinguish the urgent and the important, which isn't something that people responsive to elections do terribly well. But even Saddam Hussein, I mean, the the use of chemical weapons against the Kurds in 1987-88 in the onfall campaign. Remember, of course, we've been aligned with Saddam's regime throughout the 80s. Rumsfeld and the, the famous bear hug in Baghdad. Bob Gates, very much a part of that mentality, which was the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Iran, the greater enemy, therefore cozy up to Saddam. Well, here he was using chemical weapons against his own people, and what do we do? The year following, we doubled our aid to Saddam's regime, not because he used chemical weapons against his own people, but because, again, human consequences, human beings, foreign life isn't really factoring in whether this aid package is the right thing or the wrong thing to do. So instead of actually taking his genocidal campaign as a signal of the kind of long-term partner he would be for U.S. interests of the strategic kind, not not of the moral kind. We bracketed it. I mean, some of you have read my book, remember that there was a famous cable from the Secretary for Near Eastern Affairs to the Secretary of State George Shultz, which said, human rights and chemical weapons use aside, comma, (laughs) our interests run roughly parallel to those of Iraq. You know, human rights, chemical weapons use aside, comma. So what was kind of amazing about the days after 9-11 was feeling as if there was a recognition outside the human rights circles that these commas weren't sustainable. You can't say chemical weapons use aside. You can't say human rights abuse aside. It's predictive on some level. And so here you get Bush's second inaugural and some of the rhetoric, which many, of course, understandably are very cynical about. But the language that he's using reflects some genuine understanding that here we partner with Egypt and Saudi Arabia uncritically for all those years. And lo and behold, there are huge numbers of Egyptians and Saudi Arabians who don't just blame Egypt and Saudi Arabia, but blame the sponsors, the uncritical sponsors of Egypt and Saudi Arabia, want to get on planes and fly into tall buildings. I grant the nihilism of their agenda as well, but these uncritical relationships come at a cost. So Bush's language, of course, was that security cannot be purchased at the price of liberty. That was the line. But again, I stress, there was some recognition also. There was a grappling now with like, what does it mean if when we partner with these guys, it comes, it wasn't a grappling about Iran or about the people in Saudi Arabia, but it was a grappling with what the consequences would be in a globalized world if we maintain these partnerships and when elements have these asymmetric tools to get at us. Because in the old days, all that mattered were the states as the building blocks. Now suddenly there are these new belligerents that you have to take very seriously who are noticing, who are keeping score about how you, the United States, are behaving or who you're partnering with. Okay, so that's element number one. But the confusion comes, and this is, I'm trying to come back to because this is this empiricism that I think we need. So rather than like now, human rights and national security are inextricably linked, we need to be for human rights everywhere, and it has to be factored in at the highest levels. It has to be concern number one. The empiricism would have you then stumble, of course, over Saudi Arabia, over Pakistan, over the knowledge that rapid democratization, at least often leads to violence or greater repression. So what do we do with that exactly? And then what do you do at a moment when the United States has so forfeited its ending, its legitimacy to speak on behalf of human rights and democracy, not just because of Iraq and not just because of torture, but because of a sum of decisions and a sum of relationships or non-relationships to international institutions and international accountability. But the whole sort of package, we're not the right guy right now to be the prime advocate for democracy, for human rights, for the things that, again, in an ideal world would be the kinds of values that we would like to see, at least I think most of us here would like to see, proliferating. So what do you do then when U.S. support for moderates in repressive societies actually undermines the legitimacy of those moderates? There's no such thing as neutrality in dealings between states. There's no such thing. So you're either a hypocrite preaching about human rights usually with no great understanding of what's actually going on behind the barricades, or you're complicit and you're partnering with these regimes and getting judged by asymmetric elements. I don't mean to complicate everything, but this is the moment. It's a very difficult moment, and it is not the case that within international institutions or those who defend the international covenant on civil and political rights, that you're seeing actors, states, because that's where it comprise international institutions, stepping up. To actually help us sort these dilemmas or those who have retained legitimacy on some of these principles being the voices for the people of Iran or Darfur. I remember when I was working for Obama last year, and I remember at one of the hearings, Condi Rice came up to testify about the democracy agenda. And it wasn't going terribly well. Hamas had just won. The Muslim Brotherhood had just won. and. You know, the Iraq elections were now already a distant memory. So she had nothing. It was going to be an ugly hearing. So what does she do? And I forget how much it was now, but she comes and she announces with great fanfare that the U.S. government has just allocated, I think it was $25 million for opposition in Iran. And I'm just imagining your friends saying, no, nope, no, nope, not that. <laughs> Anything, but not that. Not Condi saying we're supporting these dissidents. And so I come back to this empiricism of Aaron, which is, If you're connected to those people, if it's not about you, if it's actually about them, rather than about you needing to come up with something on Capitol Hill to say that you're doing something that's constructive somewhere, that's all about us. That's all about the Bush administration, what it needs. It's not rooted, actually, in the needs of those who are trying to promote democracy in Iran. Okay. Third errant point that I think is greatly relevant in the present, and that is her view of perpetrators or her view of, of evil, which has been discussed i know here all day today and will be discussed and we'll we'll talk about it in the i'm sure the film will bring it out rather than getting into banality or the grandiosity of evil or whether small men or large men are at the helm for these kinds of crimes that she's looked at and i've looked at what is so important about her ideas on evil i think is her story of slippage is the story of the thread being pulled out of the sweater and you just have the little thing and then it just keeps going and going and going she understands that to do evil, for lack of a better word, or to commit crimes, to get people who've never committed crimes. And that's a really important thing to remember, to get people who've never committed crimes before to pick up a machete and to go and start murdering the people that they've lived with. In Bosnia, it was people did they were the best men at the wedding. They lived completely integrated in Sarajevo, it was a completely mixed society. That takes some doing to sever those ties. And her discussion of just the bit by bit by bit, you can't do it all at once. You can't if you're a perpetrator. It is a slow dehumanization. It is a slow rendering of people who had belonged to those who don't belong. It is a slow otherizing, but it's very, very sophisticated. And there is a logic to the illogic, and I don't mean this in a literal way, but a morality to the immorality. It's not moral acts that they're committing, but in their own, the stories they're telling themselves are not rooted in aggression and genocide, they're rooted in self-defense. And the flowering of nationdom that has been deprived them in many of the places where ethnic violence or sectarian violence occurs. So, what I'm going to do in Arendtian form is I'm going to read you something I've actually never read publicly. I hope my editor here, Vanessa Mobley, isn't going to kill me because this is going to be in my book and it's a big deal, I think. Anyway, so I'm writing a book about Sergio Vieira de Mello, who was the best the UN ever produced. Which you could argue isn't saying is necessarily going to be the, the banner headline, the best the UN ever produced. But he was a philosopher, Kantian, and joined the UN when he was 21 and was the kind of a decathlete of nation building by the time he died. He was like the world's expert. He would go into these societies, he knew what questions to ask, and that what you brought most usefully from one society to another were not answers, but in fact questions. Mm-hmm. He ran Kosovo, ran East Timor, was in Vietnam back in the day, was in Cambodia, was in Sudan, Biafra, Lebanon when the Israelis invaded in 82. It was all over. And what's great about getting that number of data points is that's why you start thinking in terms of questions rather than answers. If you only have one singular experience, and it's as a country like the United States of occupation, and it's Germany and Japan, is it a surprise that Bremer's like, well, MacArthur. (laughs) But by having 15 conflicts that you have dabbled in, you kind of know how inapplicable one thing is to the next. but sadly, very, very sadly, for the world today and for Sergio, he was blown up on August 19th, 2003, which was the day that the UN was hit and arguably the day that Iraq was lost. If the UN had stayed in Iraq, Iraq was still going to be lost. I mean, all the forces were there, all the elements were there, but correlatively, I think it's the moment that most people understood that something very, very different was afoot. So one of the things I've, I I want, uh, uh, the errant wisdom of this is, okay, how do I write a book about Sergio and about all that we have to learn about nation building, about how to fight terror without becoming a terrorist, without understanding the person and the people who killed him and 23 others? It took you now almost three years, but I was able to track down basically finally through a combination of things. A person gets arrested who was not, it was a suicide bomber, so it's very hard to actually get a confession of the killer when it's a suicide bomber. But this is the person who drove the suicide bomber to the scene, and this is his confession. And there was a lot of speculation at the time as to whether it was Iraq, Ba'athists, or anti-Ba'athists, or Saddam. This was the first sign that al-Qaeda was actually in Iraq. Because remember, because Bush had predicated the war on a link between al-Qaeda and Saddam that we knew didn't exist... We were very skeptical when people started saying, well, there's al-Qaeda in Iraq. It's like, this is your point, Azar. We're just reacting, and lo and behold, this was a sign. Anyway, this was Zarqawi, one of his first major strike. So there's a lot to the confession, which you'll have to wait for the book for, unfortunately. But, but just briefly, because this is what we need on the enemy, such as it is right now, which is listening and understanding that mentality. By no means excusing or justifying it, but actually listening So he says he took his instructions from the al-Qaeda Shura Council. This is the guy who drove the bomber to the scene of the crime, and it's Zarqawi's basically his deputy or one of his minions. But he becomes more senior after this because of his role. He's Iraqi, and he'd been in jail under Saddam. He says, for me personally as an Iraqi, I believe that the resolutions of the UN were not just, and a lot of harm has been caused to the Iraqi people for 13 years like hunger and diseases. Actually, the UN sanctions were on the Iraqi people, and they weren't on the government. Remember, the context is Canal Hotel U.N. headquarters hit, Sergio dies, but also 23 other U.N. employees. So he's explaining why he hit the U.N. Secondly, he says, a lot of Islamic countries have been through injustices and various occupations and foreign troops using the U.N. resolutions against Muslim people under the name of the U.N. Maybe the U.N. is not the one issuing these resolutions, but there are superpowers using the U.N. Crimes are committed in Islamic countries, and so we wanted to send the message to this organization. The compromise can be before the fight, before the war in Iraq, but not after the fight. And if the U.N. wanted to rescue the Iraqi people, it should have intervened before the catastrophe took place. A lot of families and children have been killed. He goes on, the insurgency, he says, is fully justified. He says, my country is occupied, and I didn't go to any other country to fight. My country has been occupied by foreign troops without any international legitimacy, and the people have been killed, and my religion says that I should fight. Even the Christians and the seculars say that when your country is occupied, you have to fight the occupier. And that's not only in Muslim countries, but also in the Christian areas like Vietnam, Somalia, and Haiti. Where the countries are occupied, it is legitimate to resist the occupier. There is no religion or international norms or traditions, whether Eastern or Western, or anybody who's supporting the occupation of my country from either a religious or an intellectual point of view. The ones who cooperate with the occupier, namely Sergio, the UN, should receive the same treatment that the occupier receives. Sergei came to end the occupation, by the way. But uh, as far as I'm concerned, I'm innocent. I didn't kill any people from the street. I didn't steal money from any house. There are thousands of Iraqis who are in Abu Ghraib jail or other jails of the occupation without charge. And nobody can help. And you're telling me you don't want them to attack the UN or the Red Cross or others? When the Americans came, they stepped on our heads with their shoes. So what do you expect us to do? Death is more honorable than life. You can ask the regular people about this, and now even the people there are wishing that the days of Saddam would come back. That is the window into this mentality that I think Arendt would encourage us to find. It doesn't mean you agree with me, because I said, the facts are wrong, the conflations of the UN, and the, but it's pretty sophisticated. It's understanding that, that the UN is even two things. It's the Sergios and the people who carry the blue passports and the Security Council, and that it's not necessarily even Sergio's fault. But that the resolutions are made by the powers, but that maybe Sergio should have stood up and should have said something. I mean, they're watching very, very carefully. So this is, I think, what with the moment that we're at when it comes to understanding. I mean, I heard the the discussion about whether we were becoming totalitarian or not. But I think really getting at also what this movement is, because we're like, to use Azar's technique, we are Ahab. And we are on this very self-destructive path toward finding the great white whale, even if the whole ship and all of our principles go down in the process. I think I'll just say one more thing and then close, and that is just about politics. I think you talked brilliantly about my favorite part of Aaron, actually, which hopefully we'll talk about in the discussion, but about the idea of being, if you're merely human, if all you've got are these human rights principles to refer to, you're done. You're lost. Like, that's it. She says, the rights of man had been defined as inalienable, but they were supposed to be independent of all governments. But it turned out that the moment human beings lacked their own government and had to fall back on their minimum international human rights, no authority was left to protect them, and no institution was willing to guarantee them. So she's like, who are we kidding ourselves? We created these international institutions as the backdrop because we know that we can't trust states not to abuse their citizens or to go and help other citizens. We know we can't trust states. Like, she so understands the nature of the state, and yet she's saying, look, but international institutions, international human rights, the guarantors of those rights are states again. So we're back to where we started. And I think your point earlier, which I just want to stress again, that what she underestimated was the bottom-up movements that do occur within societies, and maybe not necessarily changing the self-interested nature of the state but tapping self-interest, and here I'll just close with the example of Darfur, everything in the Bush administration's self-interest in the traditional sense, cuts in favor of cozying up to Sudan. All the United States wants right now at the highest levels is to be friendly with Sudan, is to be doing counterterrorism cooperation, is to be exploiting the oil. That now China is the only country because of economic sanctions in this country, China gets the oil, we don't get the oil. This is terrible for this administration. The only thing that is ensuring that Darfur is not abandoned, now, again, I hope we can maybe not hear, but Darfur is in a terrible state and an ever worse state, and there's nothing happy about the Darfur story at all, except imagining what it would be like if there weren't a domestic political movement in this country that had gotten motivated by it. Everything that has happened in Darfur, everything that the United States has done, actually through international institutions, oddly enough, has been done because of domestic political pressure. This Bush administration hates the International Criminal Court. It was part of a U.N. referral of these crimes to the International Criminal Court. We've paid for three quarters of the humanitarian aid that keeps people alive in these camps. Granted, they're still vulnerable to being attacked when they go to get firewood to heat the humanitarian aid. We've paid for the African Union. We're the leader in pushing for the U.N. Protection Force. Again, maybe not the best thing for the U.N. Protection Force that we are. The leader of that movement. I mean, it would be better, in fact, if countries that were perceived to have all these axes to grind in the Middle East and with Islamic countries, if there was some other more legitimate country that was doing that. But nonetheless, that's the product of this domestic political pressure, and that's the product of people understanding the nature of the state and just saying, well, okay, if this is how it works, if it's all about self-interest, okay, self-interest has always been defined in the past in terms of our national security and our economic interests, but maybe we as a democratic community need to inject, whether it's genocide prevention or a human rights agenda into politics, but that requires creating the perception that there will be a political cost for not integrating human rights. And on the torture issue, and here Azar and I might, might disagree a little bit, but right now in this country, and having spent some time in Washington the last couple of years, I know this to be true, it is, believe it or not, seen to be good politics, good sound politics to be for torture in this country. That's why Karl Rove introduced the military commission's legislation two months before the election. That's why Hillary Clinton endorsed waterboarding a month ago. That's why the Democrats and West Clark's answer that the Democrats are very reluctant to hold hearings on detention policies, even though now this is their opportunity to do their own part to restore American legitimacy by getting some of this stuff stopped and some of these facilities closed down. It seemed to be good politics right now to be for tortures. You're not saying I really want to tear off the fingernails and I want to electrocute the blah. What you're saying is, I want freedom to be able to use whatever coercive techniques I, as an American, need to protect the American people. I even believe it when I say it like that. It's, it's. Thank you. (laughs) The problem
2: with Samantha is that when she talks, there's so many things that I would like to address. Don't worry, I won't. One of the things is what you said about torture. I just wanted to say I'm wondering if this is our politicians' impotence in the way they frame the question to the American people. I mean, you don't just ask people, do you want this waterboarding yes, yes. thing happen or not? There needs to be some explanation that goes With it, which is lacking, which brings me to what Samantha did all through her talk. I remembered something Hannah Arendt said. She talks about judging, and that was one thing I learned from her her amazing way of explaining what judging is. And she talks about the fact that judging presupposes to see the world from another's perspective. And then she goes on to say, it doesn't mean adopting or agreeing or even empathizing. It means using your imagination to see from another person's standpoint. Now, up to now, I mean, dealing with literature, literature is of course empathy, the ability to feel as President Clinton would say, someone else's pain. But I think this objective way of judging points to the point you were making about when you were reading about the Sergio's killer, that understanding is at the center of it. And I really, without sounding idealistic, I think that the best preemptive action is understanding. There is no other way that we can get around. And I just wanted to bring two points that she made. The examples, you brought an example about your editor saying that after it falls it's going to be a story. She brought the story about General Wesley Clark. I was there at that meeting and I was amazed because she repeated her question. And then the general said it would be strategically wrong to look at the issue of torture and human rights as a strategic. I was very shocked to hear the way the interest of the party comes. The fact that in this country, we rather win than do the right thing. I mean, Huck Finn, after all, did the right thing. All right, then I go to hell but I will not give Jim up. On the position of John Kerry, when he wanted to run for president, a lot of Democrats were saying, if he were better on the gay issue, if he condemned the issue related to gay, he might have won. If Democrats become more like Republicans, they have more chance to win. This is the problem that Samantha so wonderfully brought up, and I, I want to come back, and what you said about human rights, comma, chemical weapons aside. This is the problem that I would like to come back and ask more about Samantha. But what makes me so impressed with her is the fact that the first time I saw her, she was talking about imagining those others and then writing about them. I mean, understanding, it seems, for you, as for Arendt, becomes the first step towards resistance. You cannot enter the arena of struggle with the enemy without understanding both yourself and that enemy. And that is why imagination becomes so important about both of two. And the second thing that she does is once she writes about Rwanda... I mean, once any one of us, I mean, Joanna or Sibetlana, everybody can talk about that because of your experiences. Once you write, you put yourself in that other person's standpoint and write from their standpoint, you acknowledge them. And through acknowledging them, you allow them to exist again, the right that had been taken away from them. And I think that that is what, at least from the humane point of view, is very important for me, and I want to come back. But these are the things that I think we all agree on. One thing that I really wanted to discuss with you today was what you said about Michael Ignatieff, and that is what worries me a great (laughs) deal. And I tell you why, because it goes against everything that Samantha or Ladan or a lot of us here stand for you mentioned Wolfowitz in passing too. They might come from two different points of view, but they were intellectuals who felt that it was urgent for them to go into politics. I have a lot of friends in Washington who did the same thing, honorable people, good people, who felt that it is urgent to go into the government in order to do the right thing. Now, this is, I think, very dangerous, because it means that the only domain of political action is the domain of the state the domain of the government, Mm -hmm. that if Michael did not go to become the prime minister, he would be helpless. And I really feel a loss here that our wonderful intellectuals, human rights people, people who really are great people and we need them in our camp, are saying, that's the only way I can act. And I'm sure that he's not going to act the way he thinks he is. Mm -hmm. I'm positive about that. I hope he'll lose. (laughs) (laughs) I hope they kick him out of the party. The last thing on this issue that I wanted to say was this is what worried me and this is why I'm so glad that we have someone like Samantha. What about thinking? In order for our politicians to be able to do something well, they need context. We as intellectuals, public or academic, create that context. Now we have all the people who make one statement about the war in Iraq and then they go and make another statement about Iran that you were talking about. Now we've all become think tank people. There is no context, there is no thinking. And without that thinking, it is very difficult for our politicians to be able to act. Don't think that President Bush just emerged like a mushroom. I mean, there were. Conceptions going on, what you may call it, the way that he was conceived, and what Samantha <laughs> was talking about the way the words are used, he was using great words. he was using the words that others should be using about liberty and human rights only without the context. That is what I really worry about the belittling of thought, if we ask what is wrong with the Western civilization today is its belittling of thought and alongside of thought comes belittling of imagination. It is knowledge being replaced by information. And we're getting loads of information. We're not getting enough knowledge. And when you said, I very much empathized by what you said about your book being used. uh, Human Rights Watch's report on Iraq was being used by Blair. Samantha's book was being used. My book, actually, it wasn't being used. (laughs) But I am told (laughs) by professors in Colombia and other places that my book, in fact, created the war in Iraq. How was it, by the way? I don't know. By liking Lolita, part of it was the whole Western. And they read the acknowledgments. They found Bernard Lewis there. Uh. And they said, "Ah, that's it, the evil one. They read acknowledgments, they don't read Ah. books. But anyway, that is what I think we need to talk about. How do we, because we are the ones who are losing here, how do we generate conversation which is around thought and imagination. How do we have that courage? Because that was her courage. Many panels she was on, they would want her to take sides, political positions. And she said, I don't belong. And I very much empathize with that. I don't belong to any political party or position. I go with the side that that I think is principled. And I don't care who that side is. We need that courage that she had to go somewhere where she would be alone and to go somewhere where her peers would not agree with her, and to generate new thought. On that note, I would like to open the discussion.
0: This podcast was brought to you by the New York Institute for the Humanities and the Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute. You can find us on Stitcher, iTunes, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. For more information, visit us at nyihumanities.org.